You're listening to American Timelines. American Timelines. American Timelines by History for Jerks. History for Jerks. The greatest. The greatest. The greatest podcast ever. American Timelines is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to another episode of American Timelines. 76 of American Timelines. I'm Amy. And I'm Amy. <laughs> um, and this is the podcast that brings you all of the crazy, nostalgic, interesting things from the past. And we do it year by year. And you are not Amy. Yes, I'm Amy. Oh, I see. No, I'm actually Amy Faluber. President of the H E Butt Foundation, and what do you, what is that? Oh, it's a private operating foundation based in Carryville, Leakey, and San Antonio, Texas, uh, working to cultivate wholeness in people and institutions for the transformation of communities. You know. Oh, that sounds very interesting. H E Butt. <laughs> is that really the thing? Yeah, the H oh E Butt Foundation. All right. Yep. That's Joe. Um, what? Uh, Joe! And tonight we are going to talk about 1963. We are. And uh, although people like to call me Grover Cleveland Steamer, I will admit to being Joe for now. But we are uh, in June. We've made it to June mm-hmm. of 1963. We're halfway through the year almost. We uh, last, if you remember last time, the number one song on the Billboard chart was a man named Jimmy Soul. Mm-hmm. And he is no longer... In charge of the Billboard charts, okay. Because a young lady by the name a young lady by the name of Leslie Gore. Oh, I've heard of her. <coughs> I think she sings Excuse "It's My me. Party," and I'll cry if I want to. Well, you just ruined all the excitement because. Oh, is that the song? Uh, it's this song. It's the number one song on Billboard charts. Yep. You would cry too if it happened to you. Yep. That's a good one. You like this? Yeah, it's it's classic. It is a classic. When I was in fifth grade, mm-hmm. actually I think it was third grade, we had a school talent show. Mm-hmm. We didn't have one every year, but it was something one of the teachers tried to do. Yeah. And you had to audition to be in it. Mm-hmm. And... She hated everyone's auditions and then, like, just suggested songs for people to do. Yeah. Because we all want to do 80 songs yeah. that are popular. Nobody want to do these old ones. So somebody, I think Carly Ball mm-hmm. did this song and they because the teacher asked her to do it. Oh. Uh, and this has been recorded by multiple artists since the 60s. Mm-hmm. But Leslie Gore's version hit number one on the pop and rhythm and blues charts in the United States. It was the first hit single for producer... Quincy Jones. Wow. Ever hear of Quincy Jones? Yeah. He goes back. <laughs> He's pretty well known He's now. He's pretty old. He's most known for his daughter, Rashida Jones. No, he's not most known for that. Yep. She's great. She is great. 
Okay. And she's also very attractive. She is. All right. Oh, boom. Lesbian? Stop. (laughs) Weirdo. Anyway, the the song lyrically portrays a discomfiture. Discomfiture? That's a word? Yeah. Of a teenage girl at her birthday party when her boyfriend, Johnny, disappears. We know what the song's about. Only to surface in the company of fucking Judy. Yeah, and then Judy's turned to wearing her ring. Yep. uh, To indicate she's been replaced... She's replaced the birthday girl as his love interest. I didn't, I guess I didn't listen that much to it. Oh, yeah. It's a whole story. Do you love that story? It's a whole big, long saga. Uh, did you know that John Gluck wrote it? Nope. John Gluck, y'all. Anyway, that's, is that enough about yep, that? that's enough of that. we move on to the next yep. thing? <laughs> wow. Let's keep it rolling. Keep it rolling, huh? We don't want to get too bogged down. We don't? We no. don't want people to get bogged down in our podcast? Right. Too things not too bogged down well that might change your tune because on june 11th 1963 mm-hmm. mississippi physician james d hardy mm-hmm. performed the first successful lung transplant oh can you believe that in the 60s yeah think a about lung how transplant? Pr- primitive it was well it still is difficult yeah like, who have you ever heard of having a successful Lung transplant. I don't think I've ever heard of anybody having a lung transplant one way or the other. Yeah, it's, it's very difficult. I can't believe they had a successful one in 1963. Um, uh, James Hardy and his collaborators, Watts R. Webb, Martin L. Dalton Jr., and George R. Walker Jr., were at the University of Mississippi. Uh, they found what they they found a potential client on April 15, 1963. They're ready to try it on a human. Yeah. But... Um, The patient was a 58-year-old male convict serving a life sentence. Okay. He was admitted with a history of productive cough, uh, a purulent blood-streaked sputum, (laughs) whatever that is. Oh, my God. uh, Dyspnea on minimal exertion and opacification of the left chest on radiological study. Uh, So he was all fucked up. He's all fucked up. He had there's like twelve That's other what things. We, carcinoma yeah. of his bronchioles and things. All right, um, but he did not have a tumor. <clears throat> he had all this other shit too. Um, so they did these on prisoners, I guess. I guess it yeah. was like a, a way to test. Uh, it was successful. Um, Oh, because on June 11, 1963, a patient with a massive myocardial infarction was seen in the emergency room and could not be resuscitated. Um, so he died, and mm-hmm. they used his lungs. And permission for autopsy was obtained, and preparations were made for harvest of a donor lung. Transplantation of the left lung was successfully performed, but they found a tumor on the donor. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the donor? On the... There was a tumor on the donor? Oh, the recipient was found to have uh, tumors oh. uh, between his aorta and esophagus. Okay, there were some complications, but they successfully did both lungs. But the patient died of renal failure 18 days later oh. after transplantation with no evidence of rejection in the transplanted lung at post-mortem examination. So he didn't die of that. No, he died of something I else. I guess. He didn't reject it, but he died of so renal that's failure. that's why it was successful. Renal failure is kidneys, isn't it? Yeah. I think. Yeah, so maybe he's close to dying anyway. They just want to try it. He sounds like he's pretty fucked up. Uh, that same day, on June 11, 1963, mm-hmm. a Buddhist monk by the name of Thich Quang Kwok mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. burned himself in protest yes. of, of the Diem regime of South Vietnam and Saigon. That you picture, heard of that? That famous picture. Yeah, it's a, yeah, yep. them all covered. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, was it um, Rage Against the Machine? Yes. Had a picture of that on, on their cover. On their cover of, I can't remember which album, what the name of the album is. Um, oh, God, that's on the tip of my tongue. You know what I mean? You can see it. Yeah. It's black and white. Mm hmm. Oh, everybody's screaming it right now. I know. Their, people are yelling at their at their people who are driving right now Walkman. just pulled over and crashed. Yeah, those who are on the train just got up and punched the guy next to him. Yep. It smells bad. Um Ryan Burkett's really mad right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when he gets mad he jizzes everywhere. Did he you does know yeah, he does. He, he remember does. he jizzes yeah. out of anger. <laughs> uh, I wonder if we should bleep out his name. He nah, he'd probably be okay with he it. He doesn't care. Uh he likes that everybody knows of that. the music video podcast. The music video podcast, y'all. That's right. If you want to listen to a guy who jizzes when he's angry, his <laughs> name is Ryan Burkett, and he and Chris Coffin have a a podcast about music videos. They're based in Chicago. It's called the Music Video Podcast. Shout out. Anyway, back to this Buddhist that let himself on fire. Yeah. Uh, the only body part that didn't burn, despite being, despite trying to burn it twice, mm-hmm. twice more with cremation because they mm. try to cremate the remains yeah. of his body, was his heart. Oh, wow. It was considered to be holy and placed in a glass chalice. Uh, the intact Ew. the intact heart relic is regarded as a symbol of compassion. Yeah, they tried to they tried to cremate him, and his and heart wouldn't burn. Wow. Isn't that That's amazing? That's crazy. Even after, I mean, he lit himself on fire, and that was the only thing remaining, and they tried to burn it, and it wouldn't. Boy, that's crazy. That sounds like lore. That sounds like lore. It's magic. No, it's real. You think? Yeah. Um. I'm trying to see what else I have. But it, did, it didn't It did go all for not him burning himself. Um, mm-hmm. Pictures circulated widely across the world mm-hmm. and brought attention to the policies of the DM government. John F. Kennedy said in reference to the photograph, no news picture in history has generated so much emotion around the world as that one. Uh, era. <laughs> era, era, era. Mayor Quimby. Yep. I'm trying to do that. Um, and Malcolm Brown won a Pulitzer Prize for his photograph of, of the monk's death. Yes. Um, and, and It's so, a chilling picture. So him doing that increased international pressure on DM and led led him to announce reforms with the intention of mollifying the Buddhists. Um, but the promised reforms were not Im- implemented, leading to a deterioration in the dispute. With protests continuing, the ARV and Special Forces loyal Diem's brother, Ngo Dinu, launched nationwide raids on it. Buddhist pagodas, seizing Quang Dirk's heart and causing deaths and widespread damage. Several Buddhist monks followed Quang Dirk's example. Quang Duck's example, also immolating themselves. Eventually, a U.S.-backed army coup toppled Diem, who was assassinated. So a bunch of other guys November did the 2nd, same thing? Yeah, a bunch of them followed him, and then U.S. Army, U.S.-backed army coup finally came in and okay. toppled Diem. And then on June 12, 1963, the highest grossing film of the year. Oh, yeah? Which one was it? Elizabeth Taylor was the first actress to win over... To earn $1 million for a single film. Cleopatra. Oh, yeah. I was going to say it stars Richard Burton, Rex Harrison. Cleopatra, nominated for Best Picture. Mm -hmm. A clerical error by 20th Century Fox probably cost Roddy McDowell a Best Supporting Actor Academy Award nomination for his performance. Do you remember this film? Um, Yeah. I I don't think I've ever sat down and watched the whole thing. But I remember being on TV when I was little. The studio erroneously listed him as a leading player. 
rather than a supporting one. Oh, burn. When, when Fox asks the Academy, mm-hmm. let's just say asks the Academy, mm-hmm. it's hard to say after a couple of beers, asked. So I'm just going to say axed from now on. Okay. Uh, when Fox axed the Academy to correct the error, it refused, saying the ballots already were at the printer. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, we're not going to. Sorry, too late. It's too bad. Fox then published an open letter in the trade papers apologizing to Roddy McDowell. Mm-hmm. We feel that is it important. Let me do a better voice. We feel that no, it just is do it a regular voice. That the industry realized that your electric performance as Octavian and Cleopatra, which was unanimously singled out by the critics as one of the best supporting performances by an actor in this year, is not eligible for an Academy Award nomination in that category due to a regrettable error on the part of 20th Century Fox. You would think they're just being assholes. You would think they can just fix... How hard would it be to just switch him over Sorry, to a supporting actor? Sorry, I already went to the printer. That is... They're, Sorry, they are just already went to the printer. Sorry, I already went to the printer. Or just make an announcement. Sorry, I already went to the printer. <laughs> That's so stupid. We can't do any inserts. Sorry, it's against our policy. <laughs> already went to the printer. Sorry, already at the printer. See, that's bullshit. On June 15, 1963, we have a new number one song on the... MNF and Billboard charts. I guarantee you don't know this song. Maybe you do. I know some crazy shit. You know some crazy shit. I've never heard of this. This is the. This is the first Asian to have a number one song in the Billboard Hot 100 in 1963, and the only Japanese song to top the chart. Is he singing in Japanese? Sure sounds like it. I don't know any of them words. Yeah, he is. That was on the that was number one? Yeah. I wonder why. <laughs> oh, it's I not was... even that good. This grew to become one of the world's best selling singles of all time. What? Selling over thirteen million copies worldwide. Yeah, I don't... There's nothing special. He wrote the lyrics while walking home from a Japanese student demonstration protesting against a continued U.S. Army presence, mm. expressing his frustration at the failed efforts. But we have no idea what he's saying. The lyrics tell the story of a man who looks up and whistles while he was walking so that his tears will not fall. Aw. The verses of the song describe his memories and feelings. All right, that's enough of this song. Wow. Somebody's racist. No, that's not the point. That's not if you the... don't listen to Japanese pop songs from the 60s, you're racist. <laughs> that word gets bandied about quite a lot. Oh, you're saying, yeah, you're right. The Democrats are saying it too much. No, in this household. And then Trump's not racist. That's not it's what I squad. meant. The squad is saying it too much is what you're saying. And they would say. No, that, I'm saying this household, the, the accusation flies a little too much. Well, at least they're worried about it, our kids. You're racist who hates I mean, Japanese they like, pop culture. Audrey won't give him the pepper, and he's like, you're racist. <laughs> that is racist. That's racist. That is racist not to give the pepper to uh, your brother. I mean, he does. They're, they're ridiculous about it. I don't know it. where he gets it. You're racist for not liking that Japanese pop song. I know. That's 60s. where he gets it from. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. 
June 16th, 1963, Soviet cosmonaut Valentina right, Tereshkova. I don't want to be here all night. You know what I'm going to sing? I first of all, I don't want you to sing. Second of all, we got to speed this up a little bit because we're hardly getting through June here. and it's the Last episode was only 30 minutes. So we got to give our listeners deserve. No, episode. it does not need to be two hours long. Stop. That's disgusting. <laughs> what? Disgusting. Now say the thing normal, please. June 16th, no, 1963. Stop. June 16th, 1963. Soviet cosmonaut Valentina Tereshkova. All right. I might not be saying it right. All right. That's granted. What? She became the first woman to travel into space. Oh. How about that for women's lib? Never heard of her either. On the morning of June 16th, 1963. She and her backup, Solovayova, were both dressed in spacesuits and taken to the launch pad by bus. Following the tradition set by Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, mm -hmm. who had to pee on the way to the rocket. Mm -hmm. Did you ever hear about this? Mm -hmm. You have? No. Oh, you said, mm hmm So the first guy who ever went in space is a Russian guy named Yuri Gagarin. Mm -hmm. He had to pee on the way out there, so they stopped. Oh. And on the way out to the thing, and he got out and peed on the tire. Oh, he did? He got back in and went. So it became a tradition. So uh, so that was a tradition they all did? The, everybody on the way oh, to go into space, they peed on the tire. This is Russians? Russians, yeah. So Torishkova also urinated on the bus tire, becoming the first woman to do so. After completing her communication and life support checks, she was sealed inside the Vostok. After a two-hour countdown... Two-hour countdown. Jeez. Vostok 6 oh, launched I... faultlessly. Yeah. That's got to be something wrong with that. <laughs> <No. laughs> 455,945. Yeah, no, I was trying to think how many seconds are in. Who knows? I, I can't even do that. I can't even do, think of that. This isn't a math podcast. It, it is a math podcast. No, we're Figure made sure it's that it's not. a history podcast. It's not jerks. a math podcast. Math for Jerks is our next one. Oh, uh, God, that would be awful. Anyway, Vostok 6 launched faultlessly, and Tereshkova became the first woman in space. She remains the only woman to fly to space solo, and the youngest at 26 years wow, old. Wow, she's a spring chicken. Doesn't that make you feel like you've never that, done like anything? Like I've never done anything in my life, yeah. You're, you're 71, and you haven't done shit. I am she's not 26. 71. She, oh, you're not? I thought you were close. Uh, her call sign in this flight was Chaika. What? That's Russian for seagull. How's it spelled? C H A I K A. Chaika? Chaika. 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 It shows the pronunciation, but it's a bunch of squiggles and lines that I don't understand. Oh, yeah. It was later it later commemor commemorated the name of an asteroid. Okay. Okay? Yep. When she got up there safely, she radioed down, It is I, Seagull. Everything is fine. I see the horizon. It's a sky blue with a dark strip. How beautiful the Earth is. <laughs> Everything is going well. What kind of accent was that? It <laughs> was Russian. No, that was not. I must, that was like I must a, break you. It was like an, a leprechaun. In a, <laughs> in a, it was all kinds of weirdness. I do an impeccable female Russian accent. No, I don't think. On June 17th, 1963, mm. the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that no locality may require recitation of the Lord's Prayer or Bible verses in public schools. Good. In, in Abington, 
Abington School District versus Shemp against the Three Stooges. Shemp. Yeah. Three Stooges were involved in this. Under Pennsylvania law, public schools were required to read the Bible at the opening of each school day. Is it? Did they really? The read from the Bible, yeah. The school district sought to enjoin enforcement of the statute. The district court ruled that the statute violated the First Amendment even after the statute had been amended to permit a student to And there's so himself. many people that think that that is where well, still- America went wrong. That is where it started. And, like, the whole... There's so many people that think that the whole problem that we have now in this world is because they took that away at well, schools. Some people don't realize, too, that uh, the the In God We Trust on dollar bills... Wasn't there. That wasn't there at the beginning. And they put that and in the And under God wasn't in the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, they put all that stuff in the mid-50s yeah. when all that McCarthyism shit yeah. was going on uh, to scare people. Um, anyway... Uh, Oh, the court consolidated this case with one involving Maryland atheists who challenged a city rule that provided for opening exercises in the public schools that consisted primarily of reading a chapter from the Bible and the Lord's Prayer. Uh, The state's highest court held the exercise did not violate the First Amendment. The religious character of the exercise was admitted by the state. Um, So public schools cannot sponsor Bible readings and recitations of the Lord's Prayer under the First Amendment's Establishment Clause. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, in both cases, the majority concluded that the laws required religious exercises and such exercises directly violated the First Amendment. The court affirmed the Pennsylvania decision and reversed and remanded the Maryland decision because the mandatory reading from the Bible before school each day was found to be unconstitutional. So in Maryland, it overturned that. that they ruled. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Justice Stewart dissented, expressing the view that on the records it could not be said that the Establishment Clause had necessarily been violated. He would remand both cases for further hearings. That same day... Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I had that twice. Never mind. On June 26, 1963, JFK famously told a crowd, legend goes that he told a crowd at the Berlin Wall, Ich bin ein Berliner. Mm -hmm. You heard of this? Mm -hmm, Yeah. And what is he supposedly, like everybody says he said. It's like, I'm a... I'm a bagel or something. I don't yeah, even remember. Yeah, he said the wrong thing. So um, the president intended to express solidarity, uh, solidarity with the citizens of Berlin by saying he was one of them. But some critics claimed that by adding the indefinite article Ein, he actually called himself a jelly donut. That's what it was. Known in much of Germany as a Berliner. 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 But linguists say, however, that the president did not commit a grammatical faux pas because ein is required when the speaker is speaking figuratively, not literally, you fucking assholes. God, why are people fighting about something like this? No, they didn't say it like that. uh, No, I know they didn't say it like that. But I'm saying, why, why why do people give a shit? I don't understand. Oh, in addition, the jam-filled pastry known as a Berliner in the rest of Germany is called a Fankuchen in Berlin. So there would have been no confusion among the listeners. So it wouldn't have made a difference. Fankuchen. Yeah, no. It was just people probably trying to make JFK look yeah, stupid. Yeah, make him look bad, just like... You know, just like how everybody did with everybody, Obama. Yeah. Obama wore that tan suit, and everybody was ready to... Yeah. Fox News was ready to burn the Why? What was their problem down? with the tan suit? It's disrespectful to wear a tan suit, I guess. What? You know, have you ever worn a tan suit without trying to be disrespectful? 
I'm usually disrespectful though. That's so true. you're disrespectful. Whatever, no matter what I, I wear. guess it's not. It's like informal. So it's whatever you're doing and where he wore a tan God, suit. I guess it's made something. a big deal about that. Yeah, that was his biggest scandal. He wore a tan I suit. I didn't miss it. We have eight thousand scandals yeah, going on right now, but Obama's was he wore a tan suit. Jesus. June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three. Mm-hmm. John Lennon. Beats up Cavern DJ Bob Wooler at Paul McCartney's 21st birthday party. Oh, he did? Yep. Uh, according to BeatlesBible.com, Paul McCartney was celebrating his 21st birthday with a party held at his Aunt Jen's house mm-hmm. at 147 Dina's Lane, Hayton, Liverpool. Okay. The party was held in a marquee in the back garden in the evening of June 18th. The foremost... Uh, the foremost, a band called The Foremost performed at McCartney's request. He offered to pay them their regular fee, but the group insisted they would only accept four pence, half penny each. In the end, it is said they were never paid. Okay. The party was overshadowed, however, by an incident involving John Lennon and Bob Wooler, the disc jockey of the Cavern Club. Following, John, uh, following Lennon's holiday to Barcelona with Brian Epstein in April, Rumors had circulated in Liverpool about the pair. Mm-hmm. At the party, Wooler allegedly described the holiday as a honeymoon. Lennon, fueled by alcohol, lashed out at the DJ. According to Cynthia Lennon, he leapt on Bob, and by the time he was dragged off Bob, Bob had a black eye and badly bruised ribs. And Lennon spoke about the incident in a 1971 interview. He'd insinuated that me and Brian had an affair in Spain. I was out of me mind with drink. You know, when you get down to the point where you want to drink out of all the empty glasses, that drunk. And he was saying, come on, John, tell me something like that. Tell me about you and Brian. We all know. And obviously, I must have been frightened of the fag in me to get so angry. You know, when you're 21, you want to be a man and all that. If somebody said it now, I wouldn't give a shit. So I was beating the shit out of him and hitting him with a big stick, too. And it was the first time I thought, I can kill this guy. I just saw it, like on a screen, that if I hit him once more, that was going to be it. Jesus. Yeah. God, he must have beat the shit out of him. I know, him. like the biggest like guy about peace and love. Yeah. <laughs> beat the sh- almost killed a guy. Think about it. If he hit him one more time and killed him. Yeah. None, none of that. that none of the Beatles. The Beatles would have been nothing. Yep. Imagine nothing. And then on June 29th, 1963, mm-hmm. a man named Ralph Farrar was diagnosed with a disease called hemochromatosis. Okay. The result was that his blood had too much iron. The treatment at the time, which is still recommended today, is removal of blood from the body on a regular basis. Once a week, Farrar would go to the doctor where they would remove a pint of his blood. Yeah. Blood taken for this purpose cannot be used as a part of a blood bank, so he found another use. Oh. Once a week, he would pour a bottle on his roses as an iron-rich fertilizer. Oh. And the roses thrived. Oh, God. You can find an article about this in the Tuscaloosa News. That's disgusting. Yeah. So they just gave it to him? He was Like able after to keep they it. drained it, they gave it to him? Yeah. Can you imagine that? A doctor saying, well, you can have it. Here you go. Yeah. You can have all this just blood. Just take your, but we can't do anything with now it. Now it's we, like a biohazard. Now they're they, probably going to throw it away. He was probably like, no, keep, uh, let me keep it. Ew. Blood, yep. is, blood is so gross. The roses grew so big that they enveloped Bob. And they ate him. And they ate him. Yep. Okay, no, that, that didn't happen. Uh, but, yeah, how about that? That was from the Yuck. 
I got that from the weird news yeah. site. Um, but if you look up the Tuscaloosa, New, Tuscaloosa News on June 29th, 1963, you can find that story. And then on yeah. July 1st, I need to get, can you give me a beer out of there? Any one of them will do. Ooh, nice choice, honey. Belching Beaver Digital Bath. July 1st, 1963, Andy Warhol produced and directed a film called Sleep. Oh, he you, did? You ever hear this? <laughs> what did you hear this? Sleep. <laughs> what did you hear this? <laughs> yeah, that's great. This is the dumbest thing <laughs> I've possibly read ever. Sleep is a, f- is a, uh, is a long movie. It's five hours and, tw- oh, and 21 minutes long. And it consists solely of one long take of his close friend John sleeping. <laughs> <laughs> Only nine people attended the premiere, and two of them left during the first hour. I would hope so. I can't believe they all didn't leave. You mean that means that there was seven people that sat in there for the entire five hours and watched somebody sleeping? Five hours and 21 minutes. It was just a long take of his friend. That's the biggest part of the whole story is that seven people watched the entire thing. Seven people stayed there, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, think of it. Nine people attended, two left. That leaves seven. He and John were two of them. And they wanted to watch. So there's five yeah. other people <laughs> that sat and watched the entire thing. They must have really so you know wanted. They, you to, know they had an entourage. Of I was going to say they must have really to, been kissing his ass yeah, or something. Because his his friend John John Giorno, the one who was sleeping, was also his. I think his, his par- lover, his whatever. lover, his yeah. sexual partner. Right, we get it. His sexual lover. We got it. Um, they bump hot dogs. Well, yeah, bump hot dogs. Some people call it butt buddies. I don't know if that's still an accepted nomenclature. Five hours and 21 oh minutes, his lover, he watches lover. Um, and, you know, I'll say when you're with someone that you're in love with and you're just really, like, watching them sleep, they're beautiful. Like, you think that they're beautiful. Like, when I sometimes I wake up and I look at, I see you sleeping and you're. That's creepy. Wait, no. Every once in a while I look at you and you're like, my God, you're so beautiful. Oh, thanks, babe. Other times, however. Yeah. I'll catch a glimpse of you sleeping and your mouth is open and you're like. <laughs> <laughs> And you're disgusting. But most of the time, you're beautiful. (laughs) Jesus. Sorry, I just had to put that out there. Quit staring at me while I sleep. That's creepy. Well, it's not that I'm staring at it. It's like I look, I don't know where I am, and I look over and I have to figure out, I have to piece it together. Oh. Because I don't even know who I am or what I am when I wake up because I'm so deep in dreams. Right. Where am I? Who am I? Who's this next to me? Oh, that jogs a memory. It's Amy. Oh, that's right. I'm Joe. That's right. All right. July 6th. Oh, Oh, no. I said Mary. July 6th, 1963. Mm-hmm. We have a new number one song on the friggin' billboard chart. You want to guess what it is? Well, I need a clue. You know what? That's the problem with you. You always need a clue. It's a popular song sung by the Essex. Mm-hmm. You know who that is? No. Yeah, I know this one. Tell him. You do know this. I've yeah. never heard of it. The song was written by William William Linton and Larry Huff. Easier said than done. Yeah. Oh, listen to this. The Essex were active duty members of the U.S. Marine Corps at the time, as was Linton, who wrote the song at the request of Essex member... Walter Vickers. So what about the, the... It's a woman singer, though. Yeah, it's a, it's a woman singer, but 
if you look at the album cover, yeah, the three Marine guys are black guys. Oh, three black men and a white woman singer. That's that's got to be different. Yeah, um, because just what the year before this, groups had to break up if they were black and white. If yeah, they were if they were mixed together. Um, Linton said the song's rhythm was inspired by the sound of the teletype machines in the communications office at Camp Lejeune. The group is not thrilled with the song, but recorded it for use as a B-side of their debut single, Are You Going My Way? Mm-hmm. The Essex. I'd never heard of them. Me neither, babe. Yeah, so founding members Walter Vickers on guitar and Rodney Taylor on drums were members of the U.S. Marine Corps stationed in Okinawa, Japan where my dad was stationed, so they probably knew him. After being transferred to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, they enlisted fellow Marines Billy Hill, a.k.a. Billy Proctor, and Rudolph Johnson as group members. Next, they added a female lead singer, Anita Humes, another Marine. She was a Marine, too. Oh, she was? Boom, yeah. We didn't know they had women Marines back then. I don't know anything about anything, apparently. Apparently, all my knowledge is gone, and I know nothing. And then on July 20th. clear. (laughs) Hey, you know what? What? Sometimes words hurt. I know. I'm sorry. You beautiful lady. In 1963, on June, July 20th, 1963, San Francisco Giants manager Alvin Dark joked, they'll put a man on the moon before Giants pitcher Gaylord Perry hits a home run. <laughs> on July 20th, yeah. 1969, less than an hour after Neil Armstrong's historic moonwalk, yeah. Perry smacked his first career home run. Ah, that's pretty funny. Uh, that same day, we have a new number one song. The song's name is Surf City. Yeah, Beach Boys. This is a song by Jan and Dean. Oh, it's not From Beach the Boys? album Surf City and Other Swinging Cities. It's written by Brian Wilson okay. and Jan Barry about a fictional surf spot. Where there are two girls for every boy. That was my dream. I always thought this was the Beach Boys. I always dreamed of having two girls for every boy. It was first recorded and made popular by the American duo Jan and Dean. Yeah. And their single became the first surf song to become a national number one hit. And that's when that surfing craze started. Yep. The Beach Boys are so different. Like, I'm, I've never found They're the old. appeal of the Beach Boys. And surf music. Yeah, I've never gotten into. I've never enjoyed. I think you'd it. have to be a. You'd have to be a beach person. Or maybe an older white man. Yeah, you'd have to be an old white man in this time. But I think if you're a beach person, like you're someone that just spends all their time, you're not a beach person. You, you, yeah. s- you spend maybe an hour at the beach and you're done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. True. I mean, it's not yeah. for you. It's just yeah. not your thing. Some people are beach people. Yeah, like they just. They, I know. I see them. They're they like live black. and breathe, and they're yeah, they're real. They're crisp. They're crisp, and they just—that's their thing. Yep. But you're talking about white people that, you know, obviously black people. Not all black people are beach people, right? Um, but you're talking about like white people that sit out there all the time. That's um, what I'm talking about. But yeah. some people are just like that's their thing, and they probably love this. And then July twenty second, nineteen sixty-three, Liston versus Patterson two. Liston mm. beats Patterson, remember that? Yes. Patterson and Liston had a rematch clause in their contract. Patterson wanted a chance to redeem himself. So they had a rematch on July 22nd in Las Vegas. Patterson 
a 4-1 to betting underdog, was knocked down three times and counted out at 2-10 of the first round. Liston beat Patterson again. All right. You don't want any more? The fight lasted four seconds longer than the first one. Liston's victory was loudly booed. The public is not with me. I know it, Liston said afterwards, but they'll have to swing along until somebody comes to beat me. Boom. Yeah. And then on August... What's your... 28th. August 1st, 1963? Yes. Listen to this one. Now, it's sports, but it's it's a crucial thing. Okay. In 19, 1962, the San Diego Chargers trudged to a 4-10 and 10 record. Okay. For the wins are first. So that means it's okay. bad, right? Um, Coach Sid Gilman watched broken bodies and losses pile up. In 1963, he was ready to try things no one had ever done. So he found Rough Acres, a failed dude ranch, 70 miles east of San Diego, down a dirt road from the tiny town of Boulevard, California, and it's one bar... That's all it had. He set the Chargers up to train there on the flat, dusty surface that looked like it had been cut out of a hill. Okay. It was a late summer. It was high 90s. And he made a football laboratory, a place where people could remake the game by mixing iron and pills and even the colors of the men themselves. What? So he mixed black people and white people oh, together. Oh, um, and And gave them pills. Okay. Uh, Rough Acres was where he introduced the game's first strength coach, the first weightlifting program, and a conscious conscious effort to racially integrate his club. It was also where... Was this the... No, this wasn't that... Um, remember the Titans movie, was it? No. It was also where Gilman and his staff handed out little pink pills called Dianabol. What? It was an anabolic steroid. Oh, boy. The San Diego Chargers became the first professional sports team to use steroids. Wow. As training camp approached, Gilman sent letters to his players explaining that they would be lifting weights and turning the conventional wisdom of decades on its head at Rough Acres. On the first day of camp, he introduced a five foot six Louisiana man named Alvin Roy, the mastermind of their weight program. Um, he was their first uh, strength coach. Okay. Um, Hall of Fame offensive tackle Ron Mix says, I still remember his speech almost verbatim. He said, because you're going to be lifting weights in addition to working out twice a day, you're going to need more protein. And he said, when I was a trainer for the U.S. team in the Olympics, I learned a secret from those Ruskies. And he held up a bottle of pink pills. And he says, this stuff is called Diana Ball, and it's going to help assimilate protein, and you'll be taking it every day. And sure enough, it showed up in our training tables in cereal bowls. Dinoball was a brand name for methandrostenolone, an artificial mm, form of okay. testosterone yeah. designed to promote healing and strength in patients. In 1963, it had been on the market for only five years and used by U.S. weightlifters for fewer than three. It was legal. Yeah. It wasn't banned, and the players discovered it worked. And their testicles shrank. At the end of training camp, people were saying, have you noticed anything? Yeah, I noticed. Offensive guard Pat Shea says the strength was there. Yeah. For more than 40 years, the story of the 1963 Chargers has been as follows. They endured a comically hellish training camp, romped through the American Football League regular season behind a legendary offensive line, enjoyed the glorious play of wide receiver Lance Hallworth, and won the AFL championship 51-10 to over the Boston Patriots. But it was all because of steroids. steroids. Yep. 
But it's like you get it's like a feel good story that oh he inter- integrated the people yeah, I know. and they and played then he well gave together, them all steroids. But then he gave them steroids. It's like oh you could have had a great story, <laughs> right? But you gave them all the drugs. But the drugs probably helped. I mean, they're so bad for you though. I know, but if you give a whole bunch of people those steroids and they just suddenly are yeah. on something, it's like they're the whole nobody else is. Yeah, the they're gonna hulk. have an advantage. I mean, but it's like they they make your bones brittle and all kinds of oh, stuff. Oh, well, look, Lyle Alzado died. I mean, all the people that have died from it. Oh, really? Like, it's it gets it's like you don't recognize them. Like they get they wither away. I mean, just like a regular old really? person's death, I guess. But yeah, you remember Lyle Alzado? Remember that? I name? do. Yeah, he was the big. I mean, he was on TV and on commercials and everything. He was a big badass mm-hmm. for the Raiders, and he he got so sick. I don't know what he got, but he was a he was one of the biggest uh, examples of steroid abuse. Steroid. Look what happens to you. Stop doing it. Yeah. Wow. And then on August 3rd, 1963, mm-hmm. the new number one song on the Billboard chart is by The Times. Okay. It was their first hit single, topping the Billboard 100 singles chart. And it remained there for one week. Written by George Williams and Bill Jackson. Arranged by Roy Strigus. Oh, uh, yeah. I know this one, yeah. It's been covered several times. So in love. That's right. So much in love. So much in love. And this is considered a doo-wop song. Mm Mm-hmm. You like doo wop? Uh, it's okay. It's not my favorite. Am I your favorite? Yes, of course, honey. You're my favorite. Oh my god, we're falling more in love as it's I drink this beer and this beer. Anyway, all right. I apologize to those of you who were enjoying that song. You'll have to just download it on Spotify. August tenth, nineteen sixty-three. Oh shoot, got another number one song. This is just a hit parade today. <laughs> it is a hit parade today. <laughs> this is by Little Stevie Wonder. Like he was young? I guess. His sound, voice sounds, sounds, sounds young, like a kid. He? Yep. Little Stevie Wonder. This is called Fingertips Part 2. He's probably playing the harmonica there. Yeah. And the there's piano a, at the same time. There's a picture of him on a video of him standing up. Does he look young? He sounds good as a kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fingertips. I bet he was. Was the first live non studio recording to reach number one. There's a, You can find this on YouTube, too. I bet people were just amazed when they heard he was blind. Oh, yeah. The, the edit point that begins part two of Fingertips is when Wonder shouts, Everybody say yeah, which right when I started it. Yeah. Sounds good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is good. So the live version of Fingertips was released on May 21st, 1963. as a two-part single. But part two, the encore is the B side. Okay. And at this point, it went number one. 
It's Stevie Wonder. Mm-hmm. He's just a kid. He gives yeah. me goosebumps a little yeah. bit. He's good. Stevie Wonder's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is. We've been over that. Yeah, we have. You know, I can't get enough of it. Except for the 80s. I just called to Stevie say Stevie Wonder sucked in the 80s. There's a lady I work with who <laughs> loves Stevie Wonder. She always, if there's ever a birthday party, a yeah. birthday for somebody, we all sing happy birthday, and then she sings the Stevie Wonder version. Oh, my God, you're kidding. <laughs> happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. She just she's loves Stevie Wonder. She loves Stevie Wonder. She never stops talking about it. <laughs> August 28th, 1963. Yes. This is a famous day because Martin Luther King Jr. led the March on Washington. And did you know that Charlton Heston accompanied him? Did he? Yes. That's surprising. He was a huge Democrat back then. Isn't that weird that he switched so much? Yeah. Well, once you get money, you switch. Uh, the march was successful in pressuring the administration of John F. Kennedy to initiate a strong federal civil rights bill in Congress. During this event, Martin Luther King delivered his memorable I Have a Dream speech. That is right. What an m- amazing day that was. Yep. Yeah, it's it's available in the public domain. Mm-hmm. And King sued 20th Century Fox records company to stop the unauthorized sale of records of the 17-minute address. Did you know that? Oh, no, I didn't. But I'm a, I'm understanding that you have something else on that date. Yes, so while that's going on, so I'm going to talk about something called the Career Girl Murders. The Career Girl Murders. murders. I don't know what that is. So in this at this time, you got you got to think that in 1963 women New York City a lot of women, a lot of young women were going, right. moving to New York City and becoming career girls and putting their, they're starting to put their marriages and children on hold a little bit more. Really? In 1963? Yeah. So, wow. um, and you know, they were still like secretaries and it, their jobs weren't that great. Right. But that's what they would do. And they would become, they would room together and then they would. Yeah, working Working first. girls. Yeah. Good. So um, there were these three girls that were roommates. Okay. Patricia Tolls, who was 23. All right. And she worked at the book division at Time Life. Oh, that's not a bad job. That's not a bad gig if you can get it. And then uh, Janice Wiley, 21, who was like, uh, she was a, a Newsweek researcher, but she was also wow. like from, her dad was real famous and her uncle was famous. And famous she, for what? Uh, her dad was a author, I think. All right. And... um. And her uncle was an author. You don't seem that. I can't sure. remember. I can't remember. But anyway, she was real life of the party. She was okay. this real pretty blonde, and oh, she like um, that. she was always everybody. You know, she was just real yeah, life outgoing of the and to be all Roger, of that just stuff. Just a people person. And then Emily Hoffert, twenty three, was a school teacher, okay. and she was more school marmish. Yeah, she not was as real much quiet. Of a party animal. And it was actually school teachers um, are total losers. She was actually in the just kidding. Stop it. She was actually in the process of moving out. Oh, she was. Mm-hmm. She just didn't want was. the party atmosphere anymore. I don't know. I'm not sure why, but right. she was just in the process of moving out. But they all moved to New York. They so were all together. Yes. And so on August 28th, Patricia, yeah, the um, the one who works works on time with Time Life, right? She comes home and she finds 
the apartment is totally ransacked and it's covered in blood. Oh my gosh! This is during the wash the wa- yes. march on Washington, yes. but it has nothing to do with the march on Washington. No. Oh. It just it There's happens. Blood all over her apartment. Yes. In, is this Manhattan? Mm-hmm. So she she calls her roommate's Janice's father, the author. Okay. And he lives just two blocks away. Okay. So she calls him, and he comes. To so he the probably just guessing. He probably was a frequenter of their apartment to, mm-hmm. you know, fix things or tell them about things they didn't know about. Oh, you gotta jam this radiator or jam this radiator. Yeah, fix the fridge. Okay, you know what yeah. I mean. Like everyone needs of like a dad yeah. figure. Yeah. So he came. He comes over and he goes in and discovers like Brian McCartney was to us when we moved to Chicago. He was kind of the dad. <laughs> he would come over. And it's true. Fix our leaky faucet. Yep. All right. So change my pants. She uh, he. He discovered his daughter Janice and the, and Emily, um, dead. The school teacher. Yeah, they're both dead. Oh no! And, and he he discovered it. Yeah, because she the she Patricia called, didn't want to go in. The, in. She just saw, she blood just saw the blood and up. called him, and oh, he went no. through the apartment and found them in the bedroom. Tragedy. And, this sounds um, like a tragedy. They were both um, stabbed over sixty times with knives from their own kitchen. What? And there was evidence that Wiley, who was wearing only a towel, had been sexually assaulted. Oh. Her nude body was covered with noxema used in the sexual assault of her by the monster who had broken into the apartment. Uh, pardon my uh, ignorance. Noxema is a, is it like a lotion? Uh, yeah. No, it's a it's a soap? cleanser. It's a cleanser, but it's yeah. a liquid. It's like a liquid soap. It's like, pa- like white? pasty. Yeah. All right. I didn't know if it was like a cleaning product it would not be it yeah it shouldn't be used as that you know is there anything more insulting than to stab someone with their own kitchen i know right at least use somebody else's knives so this these slayings were were um the press started calling it the career girl murders and it was career girls it was the most the biggest most sensational most extraordinary crime and police investigation in New York's history at the time. Really? Is there is there a song called Career Girls I about don't know. this? Maybe. Um, I thought there were, I don't know. So I'll tell you a little bit more about the girls that were murdered. Why Janice Wiley, the one that was real socialite-ish. Yeah, she, the one, the outgoing blonde that everybody loved? Yes, she had her um she she was working at Newsweek. She would run errands for the editors and the reporters and things. Okay. But she really wanted to go to Broadway and so she was taking she wanted acting to be a, classes. She oh she wanted to be a Broadway yes. singer and actress. What is this? Career girls. Is this about that? This is by Jeffrey James. Why are you playing this? I'm not sure. I want to see if it's a good, it was a good background music for this story. No, no, it's not. Don't start doing no, this. No, don't start doing this. <laughs> All right, let's not have this happen. <laughs> okay. I love you. So, um, on the day of the murders, Newsweek was covering the the march on Washington on August twenty eighth, nineteen sixty three. Mm-hmm. You know what else was on that day? People talk on NBC. Is a game show where contestants win cash prizes by guessing how celebrities on a panel of 15 will answer a moral question a certain way. And you know that you the that? majority of, of America was probably watching that instead, instead of, of the, the March on Washington. Oh, uh, sadly, that's probably <laughs> Isn't right. That so sad. So um, 
She also, had, Art Linkletter's house party was on. Oh, okay. Well, she had never shown up that morning for her shift. And that her coworkers were calling. And yeah. So people started to realize that. But that was before she was found. Her body was found. That was, yes. Yes. And so the, when the police started looking at it, they got, she had like a little green book with a bunch of names in it. And oh, like so, a boyfriend like book? Like a boyfriend book, sort Boyfriend's of. Yeah. Numbers. So they they decided to start looking into all of these guys and there was all these yahoos in there. Yeah, I bet a bunch of them have probably murdered and raped people because they're all terrible. Oh, oh, here's her dad. Her dad was an advertising executive, like Don Draper, kind of. Like, oh, jeez, smarmy. And he had served on the faculty of New York University and had written a number of novels, plays, and textbooks. So there oh, you go. That's actually noble stuff and i'm like and right then, away i jumped to this and then her uncle down. was and wrote an best-selling essay collection generation of vipers yeah but he probably looked like uncle fester so and then the other um emily hoffert the other the, the school teacher, teacher yeah she had the arrived marm, the marm as you put it she had arrived in new york just 39 days before yeah they from, were killed from where from uh minnesota Minnesota. Minnesota. I bet she was a Vikings fan. They were brand new. They're two years old only. She was a shy brunette. She was oh. the polar opposite of happy-go-lucky blonde oh. Manhattan sophisticate Janice. She was a marm. Hoffert was a serious academic with a degree from Smith College who was about to embark on a teaching career. Marm. So the case we already talked about, they call it the Career Girl Murders. Yep. They didn't know... Um, the, because Wiley and Hoffert were representative of thousands of young women who had come from all over America to New York and other large cities to seek jobs and careers. And that's what I was kind of saying. They, they didn't know that? And so, uh, so others like them now felt unsafe, and the oh. police were under pressure to solve the case. Why, I'm a career girl. Well, plus it was two white girl, white women who yeah. were killed. That was a big part of it. Or get a white woman who's wearing a navy blue sweater. So there was hundreds of detectives that were assigned to the investigation. And all right. Thousands of people were interviewed, but weeks went by and there was no arrest. No arrest. Of course, we're in New York City. So at first, they think they that the victim knew the killer because of the um, viciousness of the attack and because the yeah they say only there was somebody, no forced entry. Somebody that knows you is going to be brutal like that. The um yes so so back to that green book right. Back yeah. to that green little book. And their their apartment was also um, guarded by a doorman. Uh, and oh, so th- a doorman? A doorman, yep. That guy uh, but, did and it. There, that and guy there did didn't it. appear to be anything stolen either, so, they, like so there was no robbery motive. It's like Bentley on the Jeffersons. The victim's hands and feet were bound, and they were tied back to back to each other oh. while Wiley was nude and Hoffert was dressed. Huh, two weird. bloody 10 and 12 inch carving knives were found next to the bodies, an additional knife in one of the two bathrooms. Gross. So police theorized the women were attacked and murdered in the bedroom where the bodies were discovered. <sighs> they did not Murder. immediately release the information regarding the rape of Wiley. In fact, they told the press it did not appear that either had been raped, but allowed. An autop- that an autopsy might reveal otherwise. And that's in case the murderer comes forward and yes. says, I did too rape him. Right. I don't so, get the murder thing. You know, this whole murder thing, has it jumped the shark yet? Are we done being excited about murders? <laughs> I'm just murdered out. So um, they did not get a suspect. A $10,000 reward was established to aid in the apprehension 
Ten thousand dollars. At that shit. time, was was. I'll good. turn in my neighbor for that. Then, oh yeah, that guy did it. Give me ten. And then, then a bunch of handbooks aimed at safety of single women started coming out. I bet you can find those yeah. probably in antique stores now. Yeah, I could write one of those. So, um, on the day they were um, they were murdered, Walter Arm, who was a former newspaperman, who was Walter Arm, he was the deputy police commissioner who dealt with the press. Oh, the sa- and he dealt with the press the same day that you don't say was on. Two teams of two players compete against each other to determine the name of a famous person. One member of the team who knew the answer would give clues to his or her teammate. Boy, the 60s loved their game shows. Game shows, yeah, during the day. Westerns and game shows. Yep. So as the search for the Wiley Hoffert killer continued, hundreds of men, many of them oddballs and sociopaths, were There's pursued and questioned, including dates of Wiley, whom the detectives always assumed was the target of the killer because of her looks and partying lifestyle. She was pretty and liked to potty. Then George Whitmore Jr. surfaced. Oh, George Whitmore Jr.? He if I'm was, looking through, if I'm sifting No, no, through, no, just let me... Let me I'm just describe saying. him first before you say anything about him. I was going to say, just the no, name. No, don't say anything about no? him. No. Because the name. He was, he was um, developmentally disabled. Oh, And he was meek, and he had acne. He was a 19-year-old African-American kid. Oh. So he had never been in trouble with the law. Why was he, he in her book? But, he, no, he wasn't in her oh, book. Oh, he wasn't in her book. He, he, I'm telling you. Oh, they just came across this guy, yeah. and they instantly made him a Well, suspect? let me tell you what okay, happened. I can't wait. I can't wait. I'm on the edge of my seat. So he was from a crime-riddled uh, section of Brooklyn. Okay. So um, about eight months after the murders, yeah. Whit- Whitmore was taken into custody in Brooklyn near the scene of where this other woman, Elba Barrero, had been sexu- sexually assaulted by a man who had uh-huh. fled. The old Elba Barrero. Whit- Whitmore had innocently right. been waiting to be picked up by a friend and taken to a job site. But in the police station house, he was railroaded by detectives pressured to solve yep. the Wiley Hoffett case, which had gone cold. See, these these guys do this just like that uh, making of a murderer. They pressure yep. somebody into admitting things. Whitmore was never physically abused do. by the police. Instead, he was isolated in an interrogation room and for almost 24 hours underwent nonstop grilling from hardened detectives playing good cop, bad cop. And you would say whatever you want to get out of there. Well, they lied to him that he would never go to jail. And that he, they said that Wiley and Hoffert were alive still. What and the all hell? they wanted, they told him, was for him to simply sign a 61-page confession. And, which he probably couldn't read. So he was unsophisticated. He was, uh, was browbeaten. Oh, no. This he didn't have not, any legal representation. This is taking a turn that I don't care for. So he finally agrees to admit to the murder, along with the assault of the other woman. And um, oh, no. the unsolved murder of, an, of another woman, ah. Minnie Edmonds, a 41-year-old black house cleaner who had been sta- beaten and stabbed on uh, April 14th. Now, meanwhile, they do this because they want to close the case, right? They yes. just want it, their jobs to be yes. easier. This so, is terrible. Whitmore later explained this. that confessing was a way to stop the brutal questioning and be permitted to go home. Man. Bogus evidence also was used against Whitmore. In his wallet, so they find a bunch of snapshots in his wallet. Yeah. Most of them were African-Americans, but there was one crumpled photo with two white girls, and one of them was blonde. Oh, so, so that's automatically her, just because it's one blonde woman. So there's this ve- veteran detective named Edward Bulger, and he was known to be kind of a a racist oh, and, an, no. and an asshole. He, he would say that he could tell oh, when no. black people were lying because of the way their stomach moved. Oh, no. I don't know. He, Screw that guy. Right. So oh, he, he's off. investigating it, and he's positive the blonde in the picture is Janice Wiley, oh, and that no. Whitmore 
stole it when he was when he did the the murder and even they showed the victim they showed janice's dad the picture and he said no that's not her but the police still oh man that was their hard that was their hard evidence i don't like this can we pick a different story so after his arraignment and having a lawyer representing him for the first time an attorney who didn't believe he had committed the crimes with which he was charged whitmore recanted his confession good but the cops and prosecutors still considered him the wiley hoffert killer idiots um i don't like this kind of stuff so hold on but i guess i guess we need to tell these stories jerome left law left low jerome left low was was his lawyer and he had practiced criminal defense law for 40 years 40 years sounds like a top-notch guy he said about the case quote the the police were able to do things that were wrong the district attorney's office played around with evidence that's how they solved crimes back then there was no way one no there was no one looking over anyone's shoulder and they looked at black people in a different way which i think is very true so after he recanted his confession there was never any credible evidence that he had committed the crimes for which he was charged this guy named ricky robles who was a heroin addict and confessed burglar from the bronx became the prime suspect ricky oh so they let this guy go ricky robles yeah because this there was this other junkie named nathan delaney yeah he was facing drug related charges right so he says i know who killed the career girls yeah i know and he who really the did other it. guy, the Robles guy? Yeah, he says that he came, he'd shown up at his apartment in Spanish Harlem that night. Yeah. And he had blood on his shirt, and he told them that he had murdered two girls. And so... The career girls. During questioning, police eventually learned that the murder of Wiley and Hofford had been a robbery gone bad. Robles <laughs> was looking for drug money, and he found the girls instead. So they, they did question Robles, and he ended up confessing. Oh, wait, so Robles... Admitted it, and so we let the guy with disabilities off. Yes. Oh my God! I thought it was going to take. You I, thought, I know. I thought I know. for sure it was going to be that, and then I was going to be sad. Well, and it was end the podcast forever. The um, finally, Ricky finally. Robles, yes, was convicted and sentenced on January eleventh, nineteen sixty six. Oh, the same day that uh, on NBC, uh, please don't eat the daisies. Was on, starring Doris Day, David Niven, and That's Janice a movie. Page. It's a TV show. No, it's a movie. A university professor leaves his job to become a theater critic, creating problems with his family and friends. I think they did. A That's TV, a movie. I think they did a TV show based on that. I'm pretty sure that's a movie. Oh, maybe it was just a movie that was on TV for some reason. Yeah, they probably had movies on. And TV. then uh, uh, Petticoat Junction was on CBS. The misadventures of the family staff of the Shady Rest Hotel and their neighbors of Hooterville. Okay. And it was the premiere of Doctari, an African adventure series on CBS, where it was Dr. Marsh Tracy was a veterinarian running an animal study center in Africa, helping him were his daughter Paula, American Jack Dane, and Mike, a local. Okay. Uh, That's starring Marshall Thompson, Cheryl Miller, and Judy the Chimpanzee. (laughs) Yes, he was sentenced on that day to a term of 25 years to life. That's all he got. For a double murder. 25 years to life for a double murder? Yeah. What? I hate to sound misogynist, but is it only that because they're women? And somebody's like, oh, they're not Probably, yeah. Yeah. No. Really? Probably. I don't know. I think. But there was somebody else who got off on murder. Because rape, people would get like five years for rape back in this day. (sighs) 
What are they getting now? Do they still get short sentences like that? You that's think? shorter than they should be for rapes. For rape, you should have your fucking junk yeah. chopped off and I, then fed, word. fed to you, forced down your throat. Word. And then you should be shot into the moon. Shot through a cannon. We don't need rapists. Do you know when people get shot out of a cannon, they don't really use gunpowder? What do they use? It's a spring. That's it? There's no they can't. Sh- and, and I guess they can't. I yeah. know. When I, started, when I started thinking <laughs> yeah. about it, I realized how dumb was it, but I always assumed it was gunpowder. Yeah, I was just thinking that too. I was like appalled that it wouldn't be. And then I was like, <laughs> like, Wait a how could it be? But they must like... S- they must like set off some smoke thing so it sounds it does. smells like it. It does. It's like pyrotechnics. <laughs> yeah. We had a guy at Charlotte Chow last year that was shot out of a cannon. He went <laughs> yeah. really far, but I didn't see it. But you know, so Yeah, when you think about I mean, it, it's yeah. gunpowder. I, really, I was really offended. <laughs> I know. That's how I felt when I first heard that. When did you hear that recently? Oh, on Stuff You Should Know podcast. I was like, you must have just heard about that. because I, I've listened to an entire podcast about people getting shot out of cannons. <laughs> Isn't that funny? It is funny. But- Here's the thing. What do you need rapists for? Like if somebody rapes somebody, you don't need them anymore. That's Nobody right. needs them That's around. Right. Nobody wants them. Seriously, any, any, oh, I can't wait for Charlie to get out of jail and come back home. Well, you rape someone, That's right. you don't want them around. I agree. So the one thing about this, though, is the mishandling of Whitmore, that whole thing became very um, key in the Miranda warning thing. Oh, really? That's why yes. they made the Miranda rights? It's not why. There was an actual case where with somebody last name Miranda. Oh, Dave Miranda. That, um, But it it really started, it was playing a key role in there in, when they made that verdict. Yeah. The Whitmore, um, mur- the fact that he almost went to probably put to death, because they yeah. probably would have put him to death because he's oh, black. Yeah, yeah. And a, some of the disabilities, they always. And then they talked about. Treat them they also talk, acknowledge for the first for one of the first times that you that people will falsely confess. Yeah. And um, that was before then. It was like it, if somebody confessed, oh. it didn't matter to that they did it. You yeah. know, they confessed, they did it. Like I said, I was, ha- I was hating to hear where that was going, but I guess you needed to talk about it, so everybody's aware. Yep. So then the last little bit is that. Um, Last January 28th, Robles turned 70. He's one of New York State's longest-serving inmates, living in a 72-square-foot cell and mopping floors for a dollar a day at the maximum security Attica Correctional Facility. Attica. He comes up for parole again next year, but it's doubtful he'll ever see the outside again. Attica. Attica. Um, you want to go visit Whitmore's, him? After Whitmore's ordeal, it would take almost a decade for him to finally be vindicated and all the charges against him dismissed. He had returned to his hometown of Wildwood, fell into an anonymity, and spent most of the $500,000 he had won after suing the city of New York for his false arrest. He sued him? Good for him. He died last year in a nursing oh, no. home at the age of 68. Oh, no. We can't go visit him. And then um, the ex-reporter who covered the case was quoted as saying, a lot of prosecutors knew that kid Whitmore was innocent. A lot of cops knew the kid was innocent. There was a lot of heat and a lot of pressure to get that case solved, and all those people were reluctant to give that kid any edge. Really? And that's really, to me, what the story's about. Yeah. More than anything. is about. got me upset there for a while. Whitmore. But I'm glad. So that's the career girl murders. I'm glad I had a happy. you can't really say that kind of i mean they died by that i mean it could have been really bad if he was convicted it would have made me very upset because of racism and discrimination towards people with disabilities and just i know i would have just have to i would have quit the podcast if he would have been 
And Jalen, you shared that story. So that's that. And this is the end of the episode, I believe. And it's not quite. We have one more thing because oh. we got to finish August. Yeah, we do. You're right. And, and let's just cleanse our palate a little bit. It sounds good. You know what I mean? After all this murder that you love, you love people's misery and bleeding. <laughs> I, however, like happiness and songs that are on the number one spot on the Billboard chart. And this one is by the Angels on August 31st, 1963. And it's going to stay here all the way till September 20th, 1963. Whoa, it must be a good one. Do you know the Angels? Are you familiar? No. They're an American girl group. I'll probably know the song. And this is written by the songwriting team of Bob Feldman, Jerry Goldstein, and Richard Gutterher. A.K.A. FGG Productions. We don't need to know all this. But they later formed the group The Strange Loves. All right. No, you don't care? I don't care about who's producing it and who's who's writing it and all of that stuff. Well, this recording, employed by the services of drummer Gary Chester, was originally intended as a demo for the Shirelles, but ended up being released and recorded. And are you ready to hear it? Yes. This song is a warning to a would-be suitor who, after the narrator of the song rebuffed his advances, went on to spread... Nasty rumors accusing the narrator of romantic indiscretions. Now the de- narrator declares. What? Just play the song. I am. I don't. I can't say the next word. Now the narrator declares that her boyfriend. He went away. Is back. And you hung around. Um. And bothered me. All that for that. Yeah, it's exciting. And I wouldn't go out with you. You said things. He's ready to settle the score. She tells the rebuffed would-be suitor to watch his back. I like this one. You ever heard of this? Oh, of course I am. The inspiration for the song was when co-writer Bob Feldman overheard a conversation between a high school girl and the boy she was rebuffing. Oh, he really heard came up with that idea. Yeah. And with that, we're going to send you off. Yes. Into the deep blue sea, and we'll see you next time on episode seventy-seven. We get to the end of sixty-three. This is the end of seventy-six. And I'm going to stop this. And let's let's listen to Matt Truman instead of this. That sounds good. That was the end of episode 76. Um, please buy Matt Truman Ego Trips albums. Look it up. Matt Truman Ego Trip on Bandcamp. Just buy it. He does it, that from the beginning and the ending music. He does. And I'm telling you, the, the Amer- now I'm obsessed with time. That's a song called Chrissy. It's a great song. Download all of them because every almost every one of his songs are great. He's got one shitty one. Uh, the rest of them are great. Uh, no, but really, if you and if you get that one, um, everybody's got one is the mm-hmm. one that's got Chrissy on it. That whole album, there's not a bad song on that. I'll turn them all up to ten in my Prius. Wow. And Matt Truman needs to not be doing anything other than making music for the world. Yes, he's that I agree. good. I agree. He's that fucking good. I know. I don't say that about everybody. Yeah, I hear you. Mark, Prince Marky D of the Fat Boys and Matt Truman. That's it. That's it. <laughs> All right. It's time to get out of here, Chuck Berry. Oh, fuck. Chuck Berry just came in here. He's taking pictures of us in the bathroom. Get out. We're so tired of hearing about the six days. I said, we're so tired of hearing about the six days.
Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. America!